The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn your Bibles in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking this evening at the call of God in Moses' life and how God confronted Moses and challenged him in an amazing way to be involved in the Exodus and in the work that God was doing. And as you're looking there, I want you to, to look at how many of you have seen this book? This is called Experiencing God. Have you ever seen this? Some of you perhaps have even gone through it. You realize what a significant text Exodus 3 is and 4 to this entire Henry Blackaby presentation of the Christian life. It's so significant that he even got an artist to draw an artist's rendition of Moses at the burning bush on the cover. And on the inside back cover, he, he summarizes all of what he wants to say about how God confronts us in our lives and challenges us to follow him and to get involved in the work that he's doing, to make the changes in our lives, to rearrange our entire lives, um, to get involved in what God is doing. And, and even there, he's got Moses before the burning bush. And so this is a very significant text. But as I was looking through this today, uh, I came across a passage that I'd read before, and I found it very, very interesting. I want to read it to you, talking about D.L. Moody. Now, D.L. Moody was a great evangelist. Uh, God did incredible things through him. And the point that Blackaby is making here in this section is what God can do through an ordinary human being, that God can do anything through an ordinary individual according to his sovereign power. Listen to what he says. Dwight L. Moody was a poorly educated unordained shoe salesman who felt the call of God to preach the gospel. Early one morning, he and some friends gathered in a hayfield for a season of prayer, confession, and consecration. Now listen, Henry Varley said, quote, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Have you heard that quote before? I'll read it again. The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Now, I just want to stop right there and, and give you my reflections on that Varley quote. That kind of quote has always laid me low. Do you know why? Because I just can't ever seem to get fully and completely and totally consecrated to him. Doesn't that bother you? And, and it's like God isn't doing great things in my life because there must be some part of me that's not fully and totally and wholly consecrated to him. I feel like it's like a hammer blow. Fully and wholly and totally consecrated to him. But even Varley in the quote acknowledges that it's never happened before. There is nobody in this category save one. Jesus Christ, and in that sense the quote is totally wrong because the world has seen what God did through his only begotten son who was fully and totally and wholly consecrated to the will of his Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. He said that. And so he, was, he did it. And so the world uh, has seen, in fact, what God can do through one individual, the incarnate Son of God. But there's been no one else like him. And what is fascinating to me is that Blackaby quotes this positively and then uses Moses as an example of somebody who is fully, holy, and totally consecrated to him. Is that true? If you read the account in the burning bush, Exodus 3 and 4, was Moses fully and holy and totally consecrated to God? No way. 
he argued with God every step of the way. That's encouraging to me. God can do great things through people who are not fully and wholly and totally consecrated to him because he is a sovereign God who delights in using sinners to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Is that not the story of the burning bush? Among others. So I love Henry Blackley. Please don't get me wrong. I love this book. I think it's got so much truth in it. But I found this to be such a burden because I could never quite get to the point where I was fully, wholly, and totally consecrated to him. I'm going to be hearing those words in my sleep as I go to sleep. Again, don't get me wrong, because it is so important that we take off our shoes for the ground on which we're standing is holy ground. And God dealt with Moses on the issue of holiness right from the start. We must be consecrated to God. We must seek to be holy and totally consecrated to him. But we'll never get there, and yet God can use us. To me, that's the incredible encouragement of the story of Moses. It's encouraging to me that Moses wrote it. That he revealed for all the world to see, for all time and ages to come, his own failures. The great moment of his life. And this is how he behaves. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, and 40 years before that of training in the school of the Egyptians and all of his experiences there, this great man of God, who already had demonstrated remarkable faith, in leaving Egypt and not desiring to be part of the flesh pots of Egypt and to live that kind of life, he was a great man of God, still was not ready to be completely consecrated to God and, and to do the thing that God called him to do. We see here displayed self-focus, don't we? Who am I that I should go to, go to Pharaoh, right? We see that self-focus. And, and we also see, but... but they won't believe me. And that's when God gives them the signs to do. The three signs. And we'll talk more about that. They won't believe me. They won't accept me. Or 4.10, he says, I'm slow of speech. I've got a speech impediment. And, and God has to deal with that. And then finally, the, the clincher, oh God, please send someone else. I mean, let's get to the heart of the matter. Why do all of the other things? I don't want to do it. Send somebody else. And I think all of Moses' questioning at the burning bush was not so much that he wanted an answer to each of these, but he wanted God to send somebody else. And yet Moses, in his honesty, led by the Holy Spirit here, reveals that God still did great things in and through him and by him. Is that not encouraging? What God can do in a sinner. What God can use a man like Moses to do. Now last time we talked about how Moses was really somewhat like like clay in the potter's hands and how God was shaping and working with Moses. And even this experience of the burning bush was a tremendous example of that, how God was shaping Moses and preparing him for a great work. And so for 40 years, Moses grew up in the system of the Egyptians and all of those experiences were, were cataloged in his mind and they were burned in there. And I think they probably caused some of the problem. He knew the might and the power of Pharaoh. He had seen it firsthand, and, and it caused him pause. It caused him to be, to be terrified, I think. But all of that was programmed into Moses, and God had used that in a mighty way. Uh, but then at the, at the right, at, at just at that moment, he felt that God was going to use him to deliver his people through his own strength. And so he takes up a weapon and kills an Egyptian. It says in Acts chapter 7, Stephen recounting this story, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Was God using Moses at that moment to rescue his people? Not at all. But Moses thought so. 
Moses wasn't ready yet. Put the cake back in the oven. It's got 40 more years of baking. And so he's not ready, and he's got to flee for his life. Forty years of wandering in the desert behind somebody else's sheep. We talked about that last time. And finally, after, at, at, at the age of 80, 80 years old. How many of you are younger than 80? Raise your hand. How many of you are older than 80? I don't think anybody. God can still use you. Isn't that incredible? But at age 80, only then does he get the call of God for his life. The work of God. And he's still not ready, is he? We've already seen the, the evidence of that in Exodus 3 and 4. We've talked about that. He's still not quite ready. But the time has come. And so Moses thought he could do it through his own strength, and he could not. And so he was banished out into the desert. And then the time comes for the burning bush. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Exodus 3. Actually, I'm going to begin at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. So this is the beginning of the call, and we talked last time about how the angel of the Lord is the one who had appeared to Moses in the flames of the bush. This angel, I made a case for the fact that I believe the angel is really the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate days appears to Moses in the flames of the burning bush. We talked last time briefly about the symbolism of the burning bush. Among other things, it symbolizes the holiness of God uh, in the midst of a sinful people. And that harmonizes with the way I began my message tonight. How God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people as a, as a holy raging fire. Our God is a consuming fire and yet we are not consumed. He can dwell in our midst and, and we are not consumed. Though we deserve it, every one of us, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we deserve to be consumed, but we are not. And so that, that burning bush represents the holiness of God and also the sinfulness of, of man represents many other things that we talked about last time. Get the tape. I'm not going to go through it again. But uh, there's a lot of spiritual symbolism. But now we're going to talk about the call of God on Moses' life. Look at verses 5 through 10. Moses, or God begins in verse 5, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now... The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So that constitutes the call of God on Moses' life. He doesn't really have anything else that he needs after this, does he? If this had been Jesus Christ standing before his father, he would have said, yes, I will go, and he went. But you see, all of the discussion from the end of verse 10 on is because of Moses' sinfulness and his unbelief. 
He has enough right here in order to go, doesn't he? He's been given his command. Now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh. So that's the call. Now it begins in verse 5 with, I think, a key verse in understanding the Old Covenant. A key verse. Look what it says in verse 5. Do not come any closer. Now just stop right there. Is that not a key summation of the Old Covenant with its regulations? Doesn't that summarize what God is basically saying to the human race in the Old Covenant? Do not come any closer, for I am holy, and I will have to destroy you if you come any closer. I think to me that symbolizes what all the tabernacle and all the Holy of Holies and the curtains and the regulations and all of that was saying to us is you are not welcome in heaven as you are. It is not just as I am. We don't go just as we are. Apart from the atoning work of Christ, we cannot, will never be fit for heaven. And so in effect he's saying stop where you are and do not come any closer. And yet it's interesting that he needs to say that. This is a burning bush after all. It's almost like you'd think that he would have to say to Moses, don't run away, come back, I have something to say. But uh, no, he knows. God is, is intrinsically attractive to us. We want to get close. But God has to say, don't get too close until you understand holiness. Until you understand your own sinfulness, don't come any closer. In the end, through the ministry of Jesus Christ, he will command us to come very close to the very throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is the value of the blood of Christ and the ministry of Christ as a high priest. But we didn't have that kind of ministry in the time of Moses. And so the message here is, do not come any closer. Stay where you are. And so it's not, don't run away, but don't come any closer. Just stay right there. I know you're interested. I know you're fascinated. You would come right into the bush if you could. Because we want to be close to God. But don't come any closer. <clears throat> and then what does he say? Take off your sandals for the ground or the place in which you're standing is holy ground. Now this bears some meditation, doesn't it? What is holy ground after all? What is holy ground? It's where God is. But isn't God everywhere, Mac? So what is this holy ground? And what does it mean don't come any closer? How can you get close? Wait a minute. Am I closer to God here or over here? How about over here? Where am I closer to God? If God is truly everywhere then you're never closer to God in one place than you are in another spatially, physically. You know what I'm saying? It's a relational issue, isn't it? It has to do with relationship. God said in Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24, am I not, am I only a God far away, not a God nearby, or a God nearby and not far away? Do I not fill heaven and earth? I am everywhere. No matter where you go, I will be there. But yet we've got this, this issue of holy ground. What is holy ground? It's whatever God says it is. The holy of holies is where God says it is. And he's teaching us something thereby, isn't he? He's teaching us relational closeness. It's got to do with the relationship. And the issue, as always, is our sin. And so he, he's got to deal with Moses and his sin. And so he calls that patch of ground holy ground. He, he cordons it off and says it's holy ground. And what does he command Moses to do concerning the holy ground? Take off your shoes. What is this issue with the shoes? Well, I think the shoes symbolize our daily life sinfulness. I really do. I think it has to do with the walk that we walk. And as we walk, we walk through muck. And that muck is the issue that separates us from God. And so the shoes themselves then become, like the holy ground, a symbol of our separation from God. The shoes become a symbol of our sinfulness. 
Do you remember the, in the uh, account in John 13 of the foot washing? Jesus is washing their feet. You remember that. And it's so difficult for Peter to accept this. His pride just will not allow him to have Jesus down on his hands and knees washing his feet. Well, you can relate. How would it feel if I said, we're going to have a foot washing tonight? Say, well, I didn't prepare. How would you prepare for a foot washing? Wash your feet, right? <laughs> Get yourself ready. <clears throat> well, the first foot washing, they didn't prepare. Those, those feet needed washing, okay? And, and so we prepare by getting ourselves cleaned up a little bit so that we're acceptable, right? But they didn't have time to prepare, and Peter was very offended by this, very upset by it. And he said to the Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, that's an interesting question. Isn't it obvious that I'm going to wash your feet? I'm not going to skip you. I've already done four or five of the apostles. I'm going to get you too. He said, you will never wash my feet. You remember that? He said, you will never. Actually, it says, into eternity, you will not wash my feet. And then he says, remember what Jesus said, very important answer. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Every, and there are no throwaway lines for Jesus. Every single thing he said bears meditation. What does he mean when he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me? What does that mean? We must be cleansed by Christ or we have no access to God. You can't be with him unless he cleanses you. And so this, the foot washing at that moment was a symbol of, of the cleansing. Well, you remember then what Peter says at that point. He says, all right, Lord. Then, not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well, every part, I want a bath. Because I really want to be close to you. But you see, you don't get a stronger will than Jesus. I don't, I don't care how, you may be strong-willed, but nobody's will is stronger than Jesus. You don't get the final word on Jesus. He's already thought it through. If Peter had needed a bath, he'd have been given a bath. He said, a man who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet, his whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. And he's referring to Judas at that moment. You are clean. Isn't that wonderful to have Jesus say that to you? You are clean. You are clean. And he says it later. You are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Christ's word makes us clean. But then why the foot washing? Well, a man who's had a bath needs only what? To wash his feet. We're sinful, aren't we? We get involved in sin all the time. And so I think that take off your shoes means recognize the daily sinfulness of your life. Recognize just how far you are every day from God. Remember how David spoke in this matter? He said, my sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. Even though the account later about David's life said that he only sinned in the matter of Bathsheba, we know actually that David sinned every day. David said so. In that he was irritable, unbelieving, unkind, sharp, negligent in his spiritual duties, selfish, etc. All of us are like that. Take off your shoes for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he says this. Uh, so we're dealing with the holiness of God. And God's holiness produces what? What reaction does Moses have at this moment? How would you sum it up in one word? Fear. He feels afraid. At this, Moses hid his face and did not dare to look at God. That's actually a very good response. The angels do that, and they have no, no sin to hide. The angels have six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces. And with two, they cover their feet. And with two, they're flying. All right? The holiness of God. And so he covers his face, and he's afraid to look at God. Well, who, does, who is it that he's in front of? He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's who I am. 
I'm the God of your father, the God of Amram. Now, we've talked about that before, how Amram must have passed on the stories of the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and the stories that eventually Moses would write down for all of us. Amram, I think, therefore, was a key link in redemptive history in that he passed those stories on. I am the God of your father, and I am also the God of your ancestors. 400 years ago, I made a promise to Abraham, and the time has come to fulfill that promise. I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so he's terrified, and he hides his face. And so we see in this, I believe, God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. God makes covenants, promises, commitments, and then he keeps them. That's the way that God is. It may not seem that he is keeping it, but he keeps it. It's been centuries since he made that promise to Abraham. It would have been easy to say, I don't know what that was, some kind of spiritual experience that Abraham had. I have no idea what it was because our life is so very different from that. We're never getting out of Egypt. We'll serve here the rest of our lives and we'll die just as our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers will die here. But God said, no, the time has come. In Acts 7:17, Stephen put it this way. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, he raised up Moses. So the time had come for God to fulfill his promise. So God is a covenant-keeping God. Next we see God's compassion. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. God has an eternal plan. And that eternal plan is worked out to the finest detail. That plan continues and makes progress. It is a plan right now for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. But back then it was a plan to establish Israel in the promised land in fulfillment of the covenant, the promise that he had made. But I want you to understand that God is not up there dispassionately spinning the gears of his perfect plan and not caring about the people who are crushed and destroyed along the way. He is extremely compassionate. Look again at uh, chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Is this not also the heart of Jesus Christ? as he stands before the tomb where Lazarus lies dead and he weeps. This is the compassion of Christ. His plan is perfect. His power is irreversible. Nobody can, he his hand is stretched out and nobody can turn it back. This is our God. And yet he is compassionate. He cares about the generations that have died in Egypt. He cares very much about them. We see his compassion. We also see God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And so God speaks very authoritatively here. I have come down to do something. What does the text say? I've come down to deliver them. I've come down to rescue them, to bring them up out of that land and bring them into the promised land. 
What God starts, he finishes. What God intends, he completes. He is never frustrated. Never. And so he speaks in a sovereign manner. But yet this is grace. That's why I call it sovereign grace. The, the Israelites didn't deserve this. No people deserves this. And yet God is going to do this for the Jews. He says, I am going to come down. Now, why does he say I'm coming down to rescue? These are probably things you've never thought about. Is God up and we're down? Have you ever wondered about that? Why does God so frequently portray himself as up? Why is God high and lifted up? Why did Jesus look up and pray to his Father? Again, it has to do with relationship. We look up to somebody who's above us, more powerful than us, in authority over us, somebody majestic and powerful. And so God establishes this kind of, of speaking, this kind of language we've seen before when God has to come down and look at the Tower of Babel. Remember that? What was the Tower of Babel? It was a human effort to do what? Reach heaven. How far did they get? Well, apparently not very far because God has to come all the way down to see that puny little tower that they'd built. They had a long way to go. Long way to go. And so it's, again, relational language. It has to do with how much higher God is. He is high and lifted up. He's exalted above us and can do all things. And so he's going to come down. And he's going to personally accomplish the exodus. I have come down to rescue them. It's a personal deliverance. I am involved. I am going to rescue them. I'm going to bring them out to a good and spacious land. Listen to Isaiah 14, 26 and 27. I already cited it, but it's just so beautiful. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who is able to turn it back? That is our God. And so he's powerful. His hand is stretched out over all nations. And when he comes down to do something, he will do it. And nothing will stop it. He'll do it exactly the way that he wants to do. So God is personally, personally going to deliver his people from the Egyptians. Do you see that? Do you see how personal this is? I have come down and I will do this. But what is the very next thing that he says in verse 10? So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Now what is the relationship between verse 8 and verse 10? I am coming down to deliver my people. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. They are one in the same. It's the same thing. I am coming down, and so therefore go. Don't you see the same thing in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so therefore go. Do you see the connection? We go with power. We go in the sovereign power of God. We don't go alone. I told you that Moses already had everything he needed. He didn't have to say, oh, you know, who will go with me? I'm no, he already said, I am coming down to do it. So you go. I am with you. I'll be with you. My power is with you. We can do anything if God is with us. And so this is human agency. It also is a sense or a note of God's sovereignty again in God's timing. What's that little word? So now go. Now? I would have thought 300 years ago would have been a good time. I wouldn't. If I had been one of the Jews that died in Egypt, I would have thought that. What, now, after all this time, now at last you're going to do it? Better late than never, I guess, God. No. God's timing is perfect. Now is the time for deliverance. Now is the time. So God is compassionate about the Jews that died in Egypt. He is. But the time has come. Also, it's not time to argue with God. Now go. Don't stand here and argue and waste God's time or waste your own. The timing is here. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God knows the timing. 
And so just as he waited in the, in the case of Christ, so now the timing had come uh, for God to send Moses. Now, Moses thought the timing was 40 years ago. You know that. Okay, Moses thought that the people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Well, God was not. That wasn't God's timing. Okay, God's timing was 40 years later. A.W. Pink put it this way. He said, our business is not to seek to hurry God, but to wait on him and to wait for him. Our business isn't to change God's timetable, but to wait on him and wait for him. For many long years had the groans and cries of the distressed Hebrews gone up, but the heavens were silent. Only now was God's timing complete. So this is the call of Moses. Okay, how does he respond? What's his answer? Here am I, send me? Not at all. What is his first answer? This is a fascinating thing. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? This is just the beginning of the caviling, the arguing back that Moses is going to do. Now, what is the framework of Moses' question? It's self-focused, isn't it? It's a selfish question. It's a selfish question. And I think it's, it's fascinating because it just gives us a glimpse into human nature. Our eyes are always on ourselves. Now, we can look inward and we can find the resources there, and in that case, we're boastful and arrogant. Or we can look inward and not find the resources there, in which case we get depressed. But neither one is from God, you see. And so Moses' focus is completely on himself. I would have thought it would have been on God. He is looking, after all, at the burning bush. He should be focused on God. Now, think about it this way. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and do this? Look at verse 12. What is the answer to the question? I will be with you. Now, wait a minute. That seems like a non sequitur to me. The question was, who am I that I should go? And what was God's answer? I will be with you. Does that answer the question? In one sense, no. In another sense, yes. I think it answers the question by saying your question is irrelevant. The fact of the matter is it doesn't matter who you are at all. It's about me. It's about my power. It's about what I can do, not about you at all. And so God doesn't bother to answer the question. He doesn't say, well, you know something, Moses, you're lacking self-esteem here. He doesn't sit down and give him a self-esteem counseling session at this time. You don't realize all that there is in you. You don't realize all your potential, all of the things that you could do if you would only believe in yourself, Moses. You need to just trust in yourself. Go with your instincts, Moses. You'd be amazed the good things that could happen if you'd only believe in yourself. Have you ever heard that kind of message? I fear that too many students are hearing that self-esteem message these days. This is not the message of God. God doesn't speak this to us. His answer to, who am I that I should do such and such is, yeah, who cares? Well, I wasn't going to put it that boldly, but why not? Who cares? you want to come up? I, I, that's, that's good. I love it. Who cares who you are? You are not the point. And yet we don't want to go too far because Moses had been crafted for 80 years for this mission. It's not like God didn't do all of this preparation, but he doesn't answer the question because it's not ultimately the issue. God can, out of these stones, raise up children for Abraham. He can do anything. And so the issue has never been, who am I that I should do such and such? It's what has God called me to do? What has God called me to do? I guess more than anything, I don't want us striving for self-esteem. I want us striving for God-esteem. Let's esteem God properly. Let's esteem him to be the, the sovereign king of the universe that he portrays himself to be here. 
Let's think of him properly. And if we do, I think we will think of ourselves properly too. With sober judgment according to the measure of faith God has given us. That's the right way to think about ourselves. But in light of God's sovereign power. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.